Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Abraham. And you can read about Abraham from the end of Genesis chapter 11. Mike, welcome. Good to be here with you, David. Thank you. And this character, Abraham, uh, or Abram, I think, actually, uh, we ought to say from the start, that's how he was known. Is that right? Yeah, that's how he starts out. And he's one of these characters who gets his name changed along the way as uh, he encounters the living God and things start to happen in his life. So, yeah, we should start with Abram or Abram. Yes, A-B-R-A-M. So that's that's how he was named when he was born, if you like. Yeah. Okay. So what do we know about his parents, his family? Well, his family didn't come from the bit of the Middle East that we know in the Bible as like the Holy Land or Israel. Uh, They actually came from the bit of the Middle East that turns out to be the baddies eventually, from that area called Mesopotamia. Right. The land between the two great rivers. And roughly where is that? It's in modern Iran, Iraq. It's that sort of area. So that's where his family came from. His dad was called Terah. He had a couple of brothers. One died, it seemed, when he was younger. We discover at the end of Genesis 11. Um, And they lived in this place in Mesopotamia called Ur, U-R, which is uh, an interesting place because archaeologists have discovered it. It was a pretty fantastic city in those days. They found evidence of great buildings that would have been there, evidence of canals that ran through the city. So it was a pretty important, pretty affluent city. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's really worth noting from this early period is Abraham didn't grow up knowing the living God, probably didn't know anything about him at all, nor did his dad and his brothers and the rest of his family. Right. And the reason we think that is because Ur is now known to have been a centre of moon worship. Right. So they worshipped the moon. So Terah and his sons and the rest of the family, almost certainly as the Bible story starts, it doesn't start with a guy who's, you know, a real God-fearer looking for God. He was probably a pagan and almost certainly a moon worshipper. And, and that, yet, was their, that was their faith, that was their religion. That was like. it. That's what they lived by. And yeah. there's loads of archaeological evidence to show us that. And while there's nothing in the Bible that says he was a moon worshipper, just from what we know of the background, it's highly, highly likely that Abraham and his family started out as moon worshippers. You talk about the archaeological finds and so on in that part of the world. I mean, mm. what, what, what has been revealed then about that society? I, I think one of the main things that's been revealed is um, the extent to which it really was a very cultured civilization. You know, we often think, don't we, in our arrogant Western mindset that that everything centuries ago must have been pretty rough and mm, primitive. It, it, it was a hard life. And clearly there were people who lived in those. But we know quite a bit about some of these ancient cities. And uh, like I said, they, they've discovered things like magnificent buildings and a network of canals that ran through the city and so on. So it, it was a pretty well-developed society. And it was that kind of society that Abraham was going to have to give up. Though it does look like his family was were perhaps nomads. So 
didn't necessarily think of them as, you know, living in some fine house and they get caught to lead that because the end of Genesis 11 uh, starts with uh, Abram's father uh, moving. It says, one day Terah took his son Abram and his family and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans, as the people Mm -hmm. of that area were called at that time. Uh, And they they start to move north uh, to northern Mesopotamia. And for some reason, maybe it was to do with the grass that was available. Who knows if there were nomads, the water available. They stop at this place called Haran. And that's where the story picks up. I was going to say, what is it, as far as we know, what does the Bible say about what prompted this this move? What, by, from what you've said, quite some distance as well. Yes, and the short answer is we don't know. But if they were nomads, as seems to be the situation, because certainly as we find Abraham moving to Canaan, it's clearly the life of a nomad. It fits in exactly, living in tents, having lots of uh, flocks to move around with. It was probably something as simple as what it is for nomads, looking for pasture, looking for water. The exact reason the Bible doesn't tell us. Roughly in terms of distances then, how far is Haran, you said they went to, from where they were in Ur? It's it's about 500 miles. That's some distance. In, in, rough, in rough terms, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And then they're going to do about the same again into Canaan as he moves on there. That's that's a round figure. I, I didn't get my tape measure out and measure it exactly. <laughs> no, but so, so the heading to, to, to Canaan, which is what we think of now as Israel, to yes. some extent? Yeah, that's right. Okay. That was its name in those days. So what what's prompting them to, to go to Canaan? What's prompting them, or maybe we should change the them now to Abram mm-hmm. and his branch of the family. Uh, what prompts them is quite simply God breaks into the life of this guy who is almost certainly a moon worshipper, which I find incredible. And the interesting thing <laughs> is it, it doesn't tell us about it. Chapter 12 just starts with, the Lord had said to Abraham. That's an interesting little word. The Lord mm. had said to Abraham, leave your native country and your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. So two things. He had said when? Mm, don't know. And sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we just have to face up to that. But was it perhaps while they were still back in Ur, God had started to speak to Abram, and although his dad didn't know the living God, God supervised and superintended that to make sure that his dad started the journey. So (laughs) God had said to him, Mm. this is going to be about having to leave your family. And I always love this bit, go to the land that I will show you. Not go to Canaan, go mm. to such and such. Yeah, it doesn't place. say where. Yeah, it just says go. Oh, and by the way, uh, I'll be your GPS. I'll I'll show you <laughs> as you go along, and I'll unfold it. And I think in there we're starting to see the thing for which Abraham is perhaps best known in these stories, and when he's picked up in the New Testament, a man of faith who hears God say this weird stuff and who responds and steps out to it. Mm. So, as you say, though we don't know, you might have had an upbringing around this moon worship, but heard something or or sent something from a God he hadn't actually believed in, but this God somehow revealed himself to. Yeah, which is, of course, what we're going to find again and again in the Bible, aren't we? Genesis 12 is probably the turning point God steps in with his plan of salvation for the world that's going to focus around 
first and foremost, a family, the descendants of this guy, and he'll break in, and we'll see again and again, won't we, in the Bible, this this God who breaks into the lives of, yes, sometimes it's people who are seeking him, but the exciting thing is our God often breaks into the lives of people who don't know him. They've never heard about him, and suddenly he's there confronting them, and their lives are totally turned around. Now, you said Abraham and his family who are setting off somewhere. They don't know where, but who's with him then at this point? Well, he goes, uh, if I read on, it says, Abraham departed as the Lord instructed and Lot went with him. Who's Um, Lot? Lot is his uh, nephew. Okay. So them and their family set out. So it's, it's what we call today the extended family. Right. Of, so we're not to think of, you know, mum, dad, two kids. In fact, as we're going to find out quickly, the kids is a problem because there aren't any. And at this stage, uh, Abram is already 75 years old. Right. And that, again, is just one of the incredible things about this story, isn't it? Because God calls this man and says, hey, I am going to use you to be a founder of a family that will one day fill the whole earth. And this guy and his wife, Sarai, who will become Sarah because her name will be changed to have no kids at this stage in the story. And they're too old for having children, are they? They are. 75. She's definitely past it. We're told as the story unfolds, she's barren, a word that's often used in the Bible, meaning she couldn't have children. And as time unfolds, because it will be another 25 years before they have the child that God promised. Right. So in the natural, they've got a lot going against them sort of thing. Absolutely. They've got their background. They've got their religion. They've got their childlessness. And it's like, I always imagine God like rolling up his sleeves at this point and saying, oh, yes, I could really get to work on this. Watch this, guys. Just remind us again why God wants them to set out on this journey to this place that they don't know where they're going. It's because in this place, he's going to start working out his plan of salvation for the whole world. It's an interesting issue of why Canaan or why Israel in our modern language, but it was called Canaan in those days. Because frankly, it wasn't the best place of all. I mean, if you really wanted somewhere that was going to make an impact in the world in those days, it would have been Egypt. It would have been some of the great nations of Mesopotamia. It might have been what we would now call Turkey, where Hittites and Syrians were and people like that. And God chooses this obscure, tiny little land as a land bridge between those three great nations. Golda Meir, Israel's first prime minister, used to have this joke and say, oh, God, of all the places you could have got Abraham to settle, why did you get him to settle in the one place in the Middle East that had no oil? (laughs) And of course, all the surrounding nations do, and Israel doesn't. So at one level, you think, God, what are you doing? And I suspect there'd be many people in life have asked that question of God. God knew exactly what he was doing. What he was doing was he was putting his people at what was in the ancient world, the crossroads of civilization, the great empires of Mesopotamia and the Hittites and the Egyptians. And he's going to put his people right in the middle with the purpose of influencing everyone from there. Sadly, as the story unfolds, often they get more influenced by others 
than be the influencers. But there's God's plan. That's why it's this tiny little obscure place of Canaan. It's at the crossroads of civilization in the ancient world. And from here, God's message will be able to spread out. Who's, who's with him? His wife, you his said? wife's with him, yeah. Sarai. Yeah, yeah. And Lot is with him and, and his family. That, that we definitely So know. there's almost like a caravan traveling together, a caravan of people and what, animals maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He would have got his flocks with him. And it's while he's on the way um, that God starts to speak to him in fact the beginning of 12 where the the lord had said to abraham he'd started to give him a little bit of the info Uh, go to the land i'll show you and he says i'll make you into a great nation wow childless guy Hmm. i will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others i will bless those who bless you i'll curse those who curse you and all the families all the families on earth will be blessed because of you. And and then as they arrive in Canaan, Abraham starts to travel through the land like nomads do. Uh, He ends up at Shechem and sets up his camp there and puts up his tents and so on. And then God appears again. And and God keeps appearing at different points in this story and says, I will give this land to your descendants. So two things are starting to come out. One is a promise to make a family. It's interesting it's a family family almost before a nation. And the two is it's going to be something to do with this land of Canaan. And it's a promise, you say, because God doesn't say, I might. He says, I will. Oh, this is a promise. And this is a promise that the Old Testament and the New Testament will come back to again and again and again. And a promise that ultimately Christians believe will be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, who is one of Abraham's descendants and who will fulfill that promise of making possible God's great global family way beyond the borders of any nation, and through whom great blessing will come to the whole world. Now, as we said, in the natural, it's almost a ridiculous promise, particularly over the children and generations to come. What what was Abraham's reaction then? Well, here's the interesting thing, and this is the bit I love in the story. He's someone like you and me in many ways and like many of our listeners. So we say, yes, Lord. And then we go and do stupid things. (laughs) And throughout this, Abraham is known first and foremost as a man of faith. He's the man who says yes to God. But saying yes to God doesn't mean you'll always get it right or you won't make mistakes. In fact, one of the first things he does at the end of chapter 12, he's in the land of Canaan. And although it's the land of promise, a severe famine comes on the land. And so he has to go down to Egypt. Egypt was always a great place to go to. In fact, many times in Old Testament history, God's people will go there. Why? The mighty Nile. And you could always be sure that there would be crops there. Mm. So he arrives there with his family. And, uh, you know, the Egyptians see this pretty uh, lady, even though she's a little bit older. Clearly, she must have been quite a stunner because he's really worried that they're going to take a liking to his wife and get rid of him. And, and so he says, and this is a little bit of him trying to help God out, and that will come up later in the story. So he is a man of faith, but he doesn't get it always right. And he tries to help God out, thinking, oh, well, if we're going to have kids, I better look after my wife. I know. Let's tell everyone you're my sister. Right. Because if they think you're my wife, they might pop me off. 
and then we're in real trouble so they can take you. So I I reckon she must have been quite a looker, uh, actually, this lady. And it's only eventually when some plagues come on Egypt, not the great 10 plagues we learn about later with Moses, but some different ones come. And uh, Pharaoh suddenly twigs that something's not right and and says to Abraham, here, what have you been doing? You know, have you told me the truth? Why did you tell me she was your sister and she's your wife? And he said, I was frightened of you. And it's just one of those examples of how Abraham is such a great model for us. Yeah, great faith in God, incredible guy, but he wasn't perfect. Sometimes he got it wrong and here he did good heartedly, I'm sure. They were lucky here really that that Pharaoh wasn't pretty mad, but in fact, um, he eventually sends them and escorts them out of the country and back they can go in chapter 13 from Egypt back to where they're supposed to be in the promised land. The promised land, of course, linking back to what we were saying earlier about God's promises. That's why it was called the promised land. Exactly. And that's one of the phrases that often comes up. It's the land of promise, the land that God has promised to his people as the base from which his message is going to reach out. But other other, other what, nations were <laughs> occupying those the promised land at that time. Well, they were. Nations is perhaps too strong a word. People groups. Mm-hmm. Um because there were a whole variety of people groups, what eventually we will know as the various ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, and the Parasites, and all the other <laughs> ites that are there. Um, so people groups who often gathered around cities. But, yeah, there, there were other people there at this time. So they had no rights over that land, obviously. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the questions often is asked, how can God give this land that belongs to someone else? And there are probably varying answers. One of them is, well, this is his plan for the whole of humanity's salvation, ultimately. But also these people were descendants of those who had deliberately turned away from the living God. And as we go on through the Bible, we'll discover some of the horrific practices of some of these religions that were in the land. A lot of ritual prostitution as part of their worship, even child sacrifice for some of them. So these weren't necessarily all poor people. They got turfed out of their home. And it didn't happen overnight. Abraham's going to live among them. He's going to model a life of faith and the presence and blessing of the living God. There'll be plenty of time for them to say, yeah, do you know what? We need to line up with that. Despite his age and his wife's age, as we said before, everything was against them having children. But what actually happened? Well, it's one of those examples where Abraham tries to help God out again. There's quite a few things happen before this next bit in the story. He and Lot separate at one point. Why? Because they're growing and being blessed, exactly what God said. But they're getting that many herds and flocks. They can't live together and they take separate lands. We get that story of Lot taking the best bit of looking land, which in those days was near Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's punishment comes on those cities because of their evil. And Abraham goes and rescues him and, and, and brings them back. And one of the key things we just need to add in is in Genesis 15, um, God makes a covenant promise to Abraham that's going to reaffirm this whole thing of uh, the child. So he is told, Abraham, don't fear. That's an interesting, don't fear. Presumably that means he had got a bit fearful Hmm. here at this point. I'll protect you. Your reward will be great. And he turns to God to start getting to the question you ask and says, yeah, Lord, you're making me all these promises, but 
who am I going to pass them on to? Because I've got no children. All I've got is Eliezer of Damascus, who was one of his servants, and he's going to end up inheriting all of this stuff. And, and God says, oh, no, no, no. That wasn't my plan at all. And then he does this fantastic thing. I wonder if you've ever been out in the countryside at night, miles away from towns, you know, if you've been on holiday in Scotland mm. or something, and the night is pitch black, mm. and you go outside and you look and you see the stars. And as your eyes adjust, you look. And then the more you look, the more you see. Mm. And that's what God does with Abraham. He says, come outside and look. Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have <laughs> to this childless man. <laughs> and I love to imagine him looking up his eyes adjusting and he sees the first few. And then as you know, you, you look, you see more and more and more. And as he looks, I always imagine him sort of pausing and saying, Lord, I believe you. And at that point, one of the key verses in Genesis that the New Testament will often quote, Abraham believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. What puts us right with God is not what we've done or not done. And Abraham's already messed up and he will mess up again. But he believed God. And what he believes here is, is not that one day Jesus Christ will come and die on the cross. He believed what God said. And God makes a, a covenant with him in chapter 15, a binding promise that this will happen. But it doesn't seem to happen. Don't know about you, but often hmm. I think, uh, you know, if I could buy God anything, I'd buy him a watch <laughs> because, you know, his timing is not always my timing. Hmm. And after this promise, um, Abraham doesn't get the child. Sarai is still barren. And so they resort to a cultural custom of the time. I wonder how many of us at times have just resorted to doing the natural thing, doing what everyone else would do around us. To speed things up. To speed things up, to help God out. Not bad-heartedly, but come on, God, I think this could be a way you could do it. And so one of the things they used to do in the ancient world, if, if a woman couldn't have a child, was she would give her servant to her husband in the hope that the husband could produce an heir through her servant, but it would legally be counted as child. And she persuades Abraham to do this. So he takes this woman called Hagar, an Egyptian servant. They end up having a child. But the minute Sarai sees Hagar is pregnant, of course, guess what? Jealousy starts to rise up. And then once the child is, is born, of course, things just get really bad. And, and Hagar has to flee. And we find an angel of the Lord meets her in the desert and saying, where are you running from? She says, I'm running from my mistress. I don't know where I'm going. And God makes this incredible problem about her son, Ishmael, mm -hmm. who, which means God hears. Because mm -hmm. it's like, I've heard you. I've heard your cry. And uh, God makes a promise. There'll be a blessing for him as well. But it is not the blessing and the promise that I gave to Abraham. Right. So so they have a child. He, he, Abraham has a child, but it's not the, the son of promise. It's not the son of promise. He's 86 by then. 
um, we discover at the end of chapter 16, you know, this is what, uh, this is 11 years after he first had his encounter with God. He's tried to help God out. And this is not it. This is not what God had planned. And then as it jumps from that story uh, to the start of chapter 17, 17 starts when Abraham was 99 years old. Hang on, hang on a minute. Because sometimes when you're reading the Bible, you've just got to read the white space in between. Yes. So he's 86 when Ishmael's born. The next thing that happens is 13 years yeah. later. And God has this incredible encounter with him again, where he repeats once again his covenant with him, that he's going to be a father of many nations, where he confirms the covenant, where uh, he gives a covenant sign, circumcision from now on will be the sign of baby boys being part of the people of God. And, and he says, you are going to have this child. And at this point, it, it seems like Sarah's standing outside the tent or maybe inside the tent if Abram's gone out talking to God. God changes her name uh, as well. From Sarai to Sarah. To Sarah. And Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. So it's not so much the meaning of the name now, but the fact that God has given her a new name. Her husband's got a new name. Mm -hmm. She's got a new name. And God promises in, in chapter 18 that they're going to have this son. There's this uh, visit of um, the angel of the Lord to them. And Sarah laughs when she hears what's what's going to happen. <laughs> of course she laughs. You know, this, this is silly, isn't it? This is... She's not getting any younger. She's not getting any younger. Uh, and then, then she gets challenged and the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, can an old woman like me have a baby? And then there's this sort of rebuke, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return this time next year. And Sarah, her name changed, will have a son. And then Sarah gets into it. No, I didn't really laugh in the end. She said, yes, you did laugh, you know. Um, and it is a little bit, rebuked by that. And how do they name the, the child? They name the child Isaac, which means he laughs, which is going to, it's like God's never going to let her forget <laughs> what she did. Yeah. But of course, she's going to laugh now, not with disbelief, but we discover in chapter 21 when he's born, she laughs with joy. And it's this child, the child of promise, the one that comes along without Abraham and Sarah helping him out. And I think that's one of the lessons that these two had to learn that, you know, when God makes us a promise, sure, he wants our cooperation, but we don't have to help him out. We don't have to twist things. We don't have to bend the rules and, and try and cajole to get the outcome that, that God's already promised us. If we wait for him, then he has a way of bringing it about in his own time. So this son of promise has now at last been born. And so it's all beginning to move forward. It's all beginning to move forward until God does something pretty stupid from a human point of view in chapter 22. And he tests Abraham just to see how serious his faith is. And there's that story that's well known by many people in chapter 22, where God says to him, uh, take your son uh, up to Mount Moriah and there you're going to sacrifice him to me to show me how much you love me. And imagine the human emotion that would be going on within 
Abraham, first of all, as a father, his child. The child is waited for for so long, but hang on, this is the child that God said he was going to give him. And as the story unfolds, they go off on this journey together and it gets to the point where, and he's bound and Abraham is, is about to go through with it when suddenly an angel comes and says, stop, I see what's in your heart now, look behind you and there's a ram caught in the thicket and he says, go and take that. And it's as if God is saying, are you going to believe me, Abraham, that even if I seem to take away from you what I've promised and what I've given you, that I can still do this? And it's Abraham's ultimate saying yes to all these things, despite his very human struggles that has him marked out in both Old Testament and New Testament as an incredible example of faith and trusting God in the journey of life that he calls us to with him. I was going to say, as we conclude, what would you say would be the significance of Abraham's life for us today? I think I'd sum it up as do whatever God tells you. Don't try and help him out. Let him do it his way. It will take longer doing it his way. Almost certainly. But it will always work out for the best. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.